So, Trent, what have you been consuming most recently? Sure. Uh, way to change up the phrasing, keep it fresh. Um, That's what I do. There's this street taco man who sells me tacos for $1.25. Um, and I don't understand his schedule, but every day after work, I go and check in if he's there. And he hasn't been there in a while. But today, on a Tuesday, for no good reason, there he was. So he wrote me a check for three tacos, and I cashed it. That was that. And you? I had pumpkin spice pecan um, muffins that my brother made. Oh, several? M not muffin. Muffins? Were they mini muffins? I've, I've had two. No, they're full-sized muffins. They're just good. Is Viraj, uh, has he been a chef this whole time? No one's brought this up. He is a little Marate chef, yes. Do, does he have culinary aspirations? Parth, do you cook at all? I seldom cook myself because I'm surrounded seldom. by others that do. But um, So everyone else in your house is cooking, and then they're just feeding you, and you're not scratching their back back? I give them my lovely personality, Trent. I, I offer them so much. I offer them my love, my affection... Just just all the things that I believe I'm best at. That was my next question, is what are you offering that's, like, holding up your end of the deal? My movies, Trent. It's, it's my movies. It's my movies. It's your Blu-ray collection? That's, it's, there you go. Yeah, Parth, you have the, like, the second best Blu-ray collection I know. And we're not going to mention who has the first, right? Alex Lane. No, why? He's... You f <laughs> what the fuck? He's the Blu-ray king. What can I say? I hate you. Game respects game. All right, Trent. So uh, what do you say we cut to the intro, huh? Welcome back to craft services our show we talk about the movies uh-huh mm. this week we have adrian alanis who is a digital compositor for our chosen film of the week of the next two weeks i suppose mank the david fincher film on netflix came out last year it's on trent's top 10 five what did we do we did five numero uno on Trent's. it was list. his it was his favorite film of 2020 yep. i have still yet to see it but I will be talking about it next week. So Parth recently told me some news about the Muppets, and it clears up some speculation from last week's episode. Parth, take it away. It's about the availability of Muppets from Space and the Muppets Take Manhattan on Disney+. Parth came to me today with uh, breaking news as to why. Some alarming information. Yes, Trent, thank you for bringing it back to me. Um... What I found out today is that Muppets Take Manhattan and Muppets in Space... Muppets or whatever, from Space. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, whatever your children's cartoon thing is named. Um, it They are basically... What happened is they are both owned by Sony and uh, as such are not on Disney+. Plus. So unless, unless Sony is willing to sell and Disney is willing to pony up the cash, I don't see it uh, landing on Disney Plus anytime soon. Parth also informed me that all five seasons of The Muppet Show will be coming to Disney Plus in February, which is very exciting. I also learned today that, I read an article, that um, Bob Iger, the current CEO of 
D- Disney, am I right? He um, mm-hmm. who who was the CEO before Michael Eisner, right? Yes. So Michael Eisner uh, in two thousand four, and he got he left in two thousand five. In two thousand four, he bought the Muppets, and apparently Bob Iger really resents him for it, and so now he feels like he has to deal with them, and so like that can be an explanation for the kind of lack of Disney exercising their Muppets privileges. And that's just disappointing because they're not going to sell it. It's just going to be in their possession till the end of time. Exactly. Trent, do you want to see me do some major, major work segueing right now? Let's hear it. All right. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's really weird that Bob Iger doesn't want anything to do with them. Hopefully, though, uh, Bob Chapek, the new CEO, will be able to work with the Muppets more, perhaps put some more on more Muppets content on Disney Plus, Disney streaming service. Speaking of streaming services, you know a great new film that entered uh, uh, the king of streaming services, Netflix? It's called Mank, Trent. It's called Mank. David Fincher's film. (laughs) We talked with a person that worked on that film, right? Adrian Alanis, the digital compositor. Exactly, exactly. So um, what we're going to do, Trent, is we're going to cut to that. Is that okay with you? Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Adrian Alanis. He's a digital compositor mastermind that has worked on such projects as Godzilla, King of the Monsters, We Can Be Heroes, and our film for today, David Fincher's Mank. We like to start it off by asking you what got you interested in the film industry. Um, originally, I studied computer animation, so I wanted to get into animation. But suddenly, VFX seemed very interesting, and I just took a few classes about that, and I just stuck to it. So, where'd you take these classes? Did you go to college for digital animation, or? Oh yeah, I did. Uh, I went to Full Sail University in. Florida. I just wanted to be in animation and uh, suddenly they said there were more jobs in compositing. Like they they taught us all the VFX pipeline, like modeling, effects, stuff like that. And compositing just make, made sense. And if you could just explain, because um, on, on the show we like to explain all the huge amount of jobs that there are in the film industry, if you could just explain um, what exactly the role of a digital compositor is what you do and whatnot the example i I like to use is like um it's like photoshop but for video like uh, you take a a bunch of layers and put them in and integrate them Mm -hmm. um yeah but because uh there's this there's this notion that bfx it's only for you know like those marvel kind of effects like explosions and aliens and Mm -hmm. stuff uh, but there's also stuff like this, like in this movie, there's a lot of invisible VFX that just, uh, like like I said, like Photoshop, like if there was a lamp that wasn't supposed to be there, you just erased it, but for the whole video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, we were going to ask, Mank are, is our film for the week, and how did you get involved with it? Um, I work in a studio. Um yeah, like for films, there's a bunch of studios that get involved in every movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this one, I worked in the smaller one, uh, but it's uh, it's a studio that we have worked with David David Fincher for other projects. Like uh, I had the opportunity to work in um, Mindhunter. 
sorry, as a digital compositor, are you like always working for like one studio as at a time or do people like work a, as independents too and like just as like subcontractors? Um before the pandemic, I it wasn't that common for people to be working on their own like in freelance freelancing for studios and stuff. Mm. Lately it has stuff like that has happened. Uh, but it's I think it's still very difficult for someone like uh, to work as an individual for for a movie. You have to go and work for a studio. So, did you get involved with your current studio, like at, like right after you graduated from school, or like what was your path to getting where you are now? Uh, right after I graduated, I went and worked for a small studio in Mexico. Uh, we only made Mexican movies and small projects like that. And then I moved to this one. Uh, I haven't been working very long. It's just like four or five years. Uh, but then I worked. I moved to this one that we have uh, much bigger projects like uh, We Can Be Heroes and Godzilla the King of Monsters. Uh, but there's, there's this path. It doesn't make much sense, but uh, I started in this studio as a rotoscoper. If you don't know what a rotoscoper is, uh, it's just like tracing. It's... Uh, boring and tedious stuff, but uh, you get into that entry-level job and then you move up to become a compositor. So that's the path I took in this particular studio. So is Rotoscoper like the natural step beneath what you do? Is that like the typical progression? It is. I think it's just like uh, to get... Like, like this step you have to do, like do your time. It's like grunt work. Grunt work, yeah. But it doesn't make much sense because... It's not like practicing for to uh, for compositing, but it, it is something you have to do because I think no one wants to do it. So it's the only people that. Are you good at hand drawing? Is that like a necessary skill for the rotoscoping part of the job? Uh, I do do hand drawing, but I, I don't think it's that necessary because the software just uh, interpolates the curves and stuff. Mm. So you just have to. I, I think you kind of practice your eye. You know, for checking details and stuff. So just to get back to our main topic again, um, if you could say, uh, what specific compositing did you end up doing for Mank? Yeah, I had a couple of different shots. I didn't have that many, but I had... In David, in David Fincher's work, I have noticed there's a lot of split screens. That's mostly what he did. Uh, like taking, the, taking a footage from, from a shot they liked and comparing it over another acting that they liked. Um, I also had set extensions. I had a particular one that I really liked. That's uh, when Mank exits the car from the, what's her name? Amanda Seyfried. Amanda Seyfried's character. And he just like drunkenly works towards the set. Uh, mm -hmm. The set, that, the, the background set wasn't there. It was a matte painting and I integrated it. And there's also the scene in the dinner party that has a fire mm -hmm. in the background that, that was also CG fire. How is it decided, like, what's given to you? Or, like, what's assigned to you? It's mostly decided uh, by the level of the artist. Like, uh, for this project, I was a junior compositor, so I got the, um, the easier stuff. And then... Right. Once you have more experience and stuff, you, you get the important shots. So for a film like this, um, how many digital compositors would you say are working simultaneously? And um, is it just divided by whoever's 
in charge. They just sort of say you take these X amount of shots. Yeah, there's a hierarchy. Uh, you have the lead compositor, and then I think for this one, it was like about 25 people compositing, mm. plus the FX people that did the, the work, some uh, matte painters, and this is just for my studio. I think there were like three or four more. Is, is there right. any yeah. collaboration, or is everyone working entirely independently? There's some sort of collaboration, uh, meaning sometimes... Uh, studios would get similar shots and the director would like the look of one. And so they would send that particular shots to other studios so they can match the look. Are you given access to like the whole movie as soon as it's available or are you only given what you need to work on? You can, you can look through most of the shots and uh, that's basically like it depends on the movie, but well, uh, sometimes you you can see the whole thing, or it spoils the ending for you. Mm. Yeah, that happens too. We were wondering because now CGI has sort of uh, it's in every movie. It's not just a Jurassic Park big tentpole type thing. Mm. Uh, we were wondering how many CG shots in your experience are there generally in a feature length film? Yeah, I don't, I don't have numbers, but there's there's a lot of them. Like for for example, this one that used uh, invisible VFX. I think mm -hmm. there were like 500. Yeah, I know nowadays uh, thousands of VFX shots in like in com in like rom-coms is like somewhat expected. Even though like Jurassic Park famously had like less than 100 VFX shots, even though it like I think it was yeah, like even 12. though it created mm -hmm. what everyone's using now. We were wondering what's the most challenging project that you've worked on. Uh, there's one that I can attack about because it hasn't been announced. I think. Oh. Uh, okay. But for another one, uh, we work on Mr. Robot Season 4. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of, um, like, cleanup clean up work, cleaning up cables, putting blood on the, on the floors and the walls. And there's a lot of work in it. Like, uh, I think most, the, the most difficult shots that I have had are not the ones that the CGI is on your face. It's the, the, the invisible ones. Mm. Right. Yeah. So uh, we saw on your IMDb that you were uncredited on Zombieland Double Tap, and we were wondering oh. we were wondering why, and if there's a certain rule for like how involved you have to be to be credited. Uh, for this particular one, I don't know if I can talk about it, but I I, I think it doesn't doesn't matter. Like sometimes the studios would would work for another studio, like as a vendor, mm. uh, but essentially the studio didn't work in that movie officially. Oh, okay. So it's like you are. So it's kind of an under the table deal. I I think so. It's like uh It's like freelancing, but for a whole studio, it's it's weird. Cool. But I I wanted to put it in because I did I really like the work I did. Yeah. So um, you've worked in as you mentioned, Mr. Robot. You've worked in film and TV, and we were wondering whether it's the same kind of work and. Uh, we've talked with a, with a few people that have said that it's essentially the same but faster, and we were wondering if that held true in your area. Yeah, like, for example, Mr. Robot, uh, there were shots that, like, for example, we were working on and episode 5 uh, that week, and the episode would air on Saturday. <laughs> so oh it had to be super quick. I, I, it also depends on the show, like, uh, for Mindhunter, it, it it also had to be super quick 
but the, the the level of detail that was required in that show was higher mm -hmm. but it, it depends on the client i think was that was that like given more time too because that was like a fincher project on netflix mindhunter i mean yeah probably yes okay. so this is more of a process question but uh how exactly are you told what to do are they just like oh like make an artificial fire in the background or is there more like specific directions and also we were wondering if there's like second drafts as in do you ever like submit something and then they're like oh change this this, this and this yeah that happens a lot it's uh i think um the, the director checks all the shots that uh, all the bfx shots that are in the movie and uh then the studio makes a bid then they submit um look development scene and then we work from that but sometimes uh, it happens that you already submitted something and they approved it and then the, the director liked another thing and it's all over you have to work on it all over again um i'm sure this uh, varies from project to project mm -hmm. but how long uh is a given assignment like how what, what is the time frame for a job generally um on a movie or a tv show like how long does that take um, probably from three to six months. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's much longer than I thought it would be. It, it varies from project to project, but sometimes, usually it, it, it ends up going longer. Your process, do you have to like think about it like one frame at a time? Do you have to like go through frame by frame and like see how the effect changes? Yeah, most of, most of the time, like, uh, you are working on a frame by frame basis mm -hmm. and you just hope you just hope it it works when you play got it the first part. right yeah uh to bring up we we talked about zombie land uh to bring up another movie that you were that you worked on uh you worked on godzilla king of the monsters which is kind of polar opposite of your i'm sure what your work must have been in mank mm -hmm. because Much more subtle all invisible effect in fact um so we were wondering, what was that process like? What work did you do there, if you can tell us? Uh, for that one, I was in rotoscoping, so uh, right. I was just tracing. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, the, the studio I work in, it is, it's a smaller one, so we got the shots from like the, um, the space, it was the aircraft thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was the clouds from the background, uh, a lot of blue screen. Right. Stuff like that. So we didn't actually work in, in Godzilla itself or the monsters. Mm. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a similar process. What, when you talk about rotoscoping, are you talking about just like in the all the individual elements? You have to just literally trace them out so that you can like play around with them yeah. in post. Just for for bigger studios. Like sometimes you work in a smaller studio and you have to do the rotoscoping, the tracking, and uh, and the compositing. Right. And for bigger studios or bigger projects, there's people that do the rotoscoping and then pass it on as an element to the to the to the compositor, mm -hmm. or people to do the match moving, the tracking, and and pass it on. Yeah. We were wondering when you're contracted for a television show. Um, is it always for the whole season, or is doing a single episodes a thing? Um, I think the way it works is that the studio would submit a, a budget and a bid, and uh, and then the 
the VFX supervisor for the whole project would uh, assign which shots go to which studio. And depending on the difficulty and the work it takes, like uh, sometimes cleanups would go to an, one studio and uh, the actual compositing, the important stuff would go to a different one that has all the right. look development figured out. So to bring up another film that you worked on uh, very, very recently is Robert Rodriguez's We Can Be Heroes. Yeah. And we were wondering if you could speak again on that what what you what your work consisted of there i think that's the project where i have gotten the most compositing mm -hmm. compositing work uh there were a lot of set extensions i haven't watched it there yet but uh mm -hmm. there were a lot of set extensions like for example you would get these holes these hallways with lights and stuff and most mm -hmm. of it was blue screen so it was just replicating it or adding cg a cg hallway and what, what applications do you end up using? Um, is it multiple? Is there like the industry standards? And if you could speak on that. Uh, yes, uh, for compositing the industry standard right now, it's called Nuke. Mm. Uh, some people use After Effects, but I have only seen that in commercial work. For film and TV, Nuke is the industry, st industry standard. Uh, also, you did rotoscoping for House of Cards. Uh, what did the rotoscoping consist of? Since that's kind of like a very conversational show, it's we're curious. We mainly use rotoscoping for to separate people from the from the foreground. Like for example, if you had a, you have to clean up uh, crew reflections on on glass doors or 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 cars or something, you would have to rotoscope um, each element so that they could be cleaned up individually. All right, great. Um, so obviously the past almost a year have been kind of a crazy time for the film industry and i'm sure that's no different for the vfx industry and we were wondering what's changed what do you think is going to happen uh what do you think are going to be the long-standing um effects of this on vfx if any um i and think just how is that it mostly has been a bad year because a lot of shows got canceled and in mid-production and uh that obviously affects the the post-production size as well, uh, because sometimes you have it, it um, for later in the year and right. it just gets canceled. But it also, I think it has opened up a lot of possibilities because before um, there's a lot of NDA stuff. So you had to be in the studio and go to work and you couldn't take the, the shots home. It, it it all had to be handled in the studio, and now um, with you. other studios yeah. had uh, had been opening up uh, work from home. Do you, do you think that that's helped with your productivity, or do you just do you like going the process of just going to work and uh, doing your stuff there? It has helped uh, in the sense that uh, I wake up and I go to work in my living room, and I just can take a a little a little break mm -hmm. if I want to, right. or eat in front of the computer and stuff like that. But it also uh, has been affecting me in the sense that sometimes when you were in the studio and you were asked to do overtime, mm -hmm. uh, you could you could refuse, right? Right. And, yeah. And and now I feel that like it just get ex gets extended. Mm -hmm. Like um, for the past couple of months, I had been working uh, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Right. As a standard. Ouch. Jeez. So yeah, 
but it, it also opens a lot of, of opportunities like uh, for example I'm from Mexico and if if you want to go to another a bigger studio they are usually in Canada so you had to apply for a visa and get the job there and stuff right. and now you can work remotely for mm-hmm. most studios I think that's going to happen I hope it does because right it, it brings accessibility for the studios and for the artists. Um, I know that I said this was the last question, but I just thought of this and I just wanted to bring it up. So you, you said you're from Mexico. So uh, how'd you make that jump? Uh, uh, you know, we, we kind of asked this in the beginning of uh, what made you want to go into the film industry. Um, but like uh, coming from Mexico, like where, where did, how did you end up moving to the U.S. film industry, I guess? I, I kind of chose my university because it was in the States. Mm-hmm. So I figured there would be more job opportunities if I went there and uh, just the, the the stuff from the visa. And, but it appears that, um, that the movie industry, at least for BFX, it's a more international scene. Mm-hmm. So if you want to work for another studio and you have the ability to do so, like skill-wise, um, it's not that hard to to get there, mm-hmm. uh, but just from a, the paperwork side of things, it's uh, it's always hard. I think it's harder for me, uh, being from Mexico, that mm-hmm. I usually just kind of apply to like Canadian studios or U.S. studio because of the uh, international trade agreement. Mm-hmm. And if if you want to go to another country, it gets harder. Right. But, but yeah, I think it's a an international scene. Well, I think that's great. Uh, Trent, do you have anything else you want to? No, ask thank you so much for coming on. This is Adrian Alanis. He's our digital compositor. He worked on David Fincher's Mank. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Beautiful. See you. Thanks. Bye. Wasn't that interview great? Did you like yeah. it? It was delightful. Um, are we going to do any more interviews on this show, or is that segment retired? No, 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 Trent. Don't you be a silly little suckler. <laughs> we have... Well, I, I made a mistake in my last episode. Tell us in, about sorry, your mistakes. our last episode, I guess, um, where I incorrectly said that Ella Dane Smith was going to be our next interviewee. Um, we had some scheduling... Uh, problems and we're gonna be giving you that uh in two weeks uh next week we're gonna be discussing our thoughts on mank and after that we'll be talking with her about her work as a production manager on lockdown doug lyman's new movie on hbo max parth have you watched lockdown yet i did nope oh uh it's on yeah it's on hbo max which i was whose hbo max account did you use bitch Parths, I was just going to say thank you for your HBO Max account information. Uh, I like logging in and then picking Parth and then seeing the rest of your family members' accounts and seeing Virage's account with a little lock on it because mm-hmm. there's probably a content blocker. There is. He's a, he's a registered child on there. So, Parth, my debit card still doesn't come in the mail. We can continue oh the bit. Oh, my God. It's, oh, my God. We should start a tally chart, but uh, I think... We're, we're nearing two weeks now, and it hasn't even arrived at my parents' house, and then my parents need to send it to me. And so we're not expecting a debit card for, like, T-minus 
March. Who knows? But, Jesus Christ. Yeah. How embarrassing. All hope is lost. Um, Parth, you have family dinner. Let's wrap it up. All right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in to another episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you stick around for next week's episode where we discuss our review, our thoughts, our feelings, our innermost desires uh, on uh, surrounding Mank, David Fincher's new film. Parth, call me crazy, but I think while we're in the midst of a David Fincher discussion, I'm going to go out on a, on a limb and say we, we, rank, we rank his filmography. Am I wrong? Ooh! Because yeah, let's do that. I just watched Panic Room for the first time, and it wasn't that good. So, a uh, little, little teaser that that's going to be appearing near the bottom. I have, I have to watch Panic Room in the game. Um, Alien Three is now the only movie I haven't seen of his, but it doesn't, it doesn't count. I know it's complicated, but we'll get to it. Okay, goodbye, viewers, or listeners, whoever you are. Bye, guys. Bye. See you later, hopefully. Parth, it's, uh, it's an audio-based medium. There will be no seeing. You won't ever see them. You don't see them. They don't see you. No one's seeing anyone. You're going to be seeing my fist pretty soon. Parth, I'm going to punch you in the goddamn face if you keep talking like this. It's that simple. It's that simple.